0: Jesus is beginning his journey now toward Jerusalem, revealing his plans to the disciples. Last week we saw in chapter nine, you know, that he's gonna to go to the cross, be crucified, die and raise from the dead. And these are all things he was very clear with his disciples about, but they still really don't understand what's going on. And that's clear in all four of the gospels. Jesus would talk about this and they say, yeah, whatever. And then they just kind of move on going, man, what's he talking about? Uh, but they were, it was almost like they were afraid to ask, what in the world are you talking about? Uh, this crucifixion and dying and raising from the dead, but um, they just didn't didn't have the guts to ask him. So they just kind of acted like nothing was going on. But um, later on, of course, afterward, they'd realize, wow, that's what he was talking about. Um, now we saw Jesus also send out the twelve, and we call them apostles last week in chapter nine because they moved from just disciples to apostles because um, apostolia, which is that Greek word for being sent sent out. And so the 12 apostles were sent. Um, and, um, and then in chapter 10, we're going to see uh, a larger group of uh, disciples that are now going to be sent out. And you could you could call these apostles because Jesus is going to send them as well. Uh, I'll show you what I mean here. But, but there's three main things I want you to see here in Luke 10 as we kind of do a quick overview of the chapter. First, Um, we're gonna be reminded by Jesus that we are called to be as a church, as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be ambassadors. Verses one through 24, we'll talk about our ambassadorship. Um, Number two, we're called to be neighbors, uh, verses 25 through 37, uh, to where we're to love our neighbors, love others, uh, and imitate Christ in that way of love. Um, That's verses 25 through 37. And then finally, the last part, Excuse me, it's to be worshipers, uh, verses 38 through 42. We'll see those three sections. So the first one is to be ambassadors, verses 1 through 24. We start in verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. So the very first thing we see is the sending out of 70 disciples um, uh, to do really what the other 12 had been doing earlier as they were sent out before. Now these 70 are being sent out, a bigger group. Um, This is specific, by the way, only to Luke. Only the gospel of Luke mentions this particular sending out. Um, And this is that uh, apostolos, uh, um, the word where the apostle comes from. In other places, we see that Jesus had different numbers of disciples. Um, Of course, the layers of disciples, there were the three main disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they were included in a few events private only to Jesus and those three disciples. Then you see the 12 main disciples. Then you see here in Luke 10, the 70 disciples. And then later on, you see even over 100 disciples. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, um, you know, it says, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, Uh, and the the names of them were about 120 disciples. So uh, by the time Peter there in Acts chapter 1 said some stuff to the disciples, that group had grown to be 120 people. Um, and you're saying, great, Brett, I just have a problem with just something you did. And you, you said 70, but it's 72. Is it 70 or is it 72? How many of you guys think it's 72? Raise your hand. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. I see a few little hands like, <laughs> my Bible says 72. Um, if you have a King James Version, or uh, I believe the New American Standard Version, um, you have 70 written there and if you have a nearly inspired version niv uh, no just kidding i shouldn't call it that it's actually better than that um but um the, the niv or esv which i i love the esv um those say 72 so which one is it is it 70 disciples or is it 72 disciples um the discrepancies in the number um 70 or 72 they the basically comes from differences found in um in about almost exactly half of the ancient scrolls and manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Um, and by the way, if you remember, the NIV uses different sets of manuscripts than the King James when they came to translate the Bible. Um, and that's why there are differences between the King James and the NIV. And that's why uh, it's interesting, there's a lot of verses missing from the King James when you go to the NIV. Like look up at eight, Acts 8.37. Uh, there's no such verse in your NIV. Uh, And the reason why is because the versions of manuscripts they used didn't include that verse, uh, the ones for the NIV. Well, Brett, which ones were the right ones? Well, um, the right manuscripts were the ones that Paul actually wrote or, you know, uh, Luke actually wrote with his hand. See, people get all up in a tizzy about this one. You know, the um, the texts, um, you know, uh, that were used to use our translations uh, do have minor issues. Um, And there's a name for this sometimes, too. Where it comes to a copyist error, uh, and I don't even like calling it an error because people freak out at that. But um, the first question I would I would ask before you get all up in a tizzy about it, is it seventy or seventy two. Um, what does this change? Uh, does, does this make you say, "Oh no, Jesus is not the source of salvation any longer"? Because uh, is it seventy or seventy? No. Um, uh, you know, uh, you, and and something I can understand the question. Isn't this the inspired Word of God? Now, if you're a King James only person, which I would not really say I'm one of those, I do love the King James for its accuracy and poetic value. And I grew up with this translation and I love it. So uh, we have some King James only people here at athe Creek who say it's it's one of the only real more modern translations that's truly inspired uh, and they have their their reasons for that and it's actually i don't send me i've got King james only people always send me books uh you know the why it 's the seventh and the final uh you know uh, uh, you know translation of true inspiration and stuff like that um I, i'm I'm not a proponent of that view i've read the books i've Checked it all out, and I have a little different view than that. Um, But but we can be certain, and this is what you need to kind of, if you want to take away the main thing, we can be certain the original manuscript that Luke wrote was perfect and inspired by God, without error and without mistake, and that was God given, God breathed to Luke when he wrote this particular gospel. So um, don't think that don't go say, well, Brett doesn't believe in the inspiration and, and the infallibility of Scripture. It couldn't be further from the truth anybody i 'm um, not alone on this all, virtually all biblical scholarship would agree there are differences in translations once you start going to translations, which you know unless you go from you have the original document which we don 't we don 't have the original document. There are some uh, copyist errors that could have taken place um, with um, any differences in the translations ancient manuscripts none of them hurt or even put a dent or a scratch on Christianity and the doctrines of Christianity. That's the main thing you need to understand. For example, 70 or 72 doesn't change anything that's important. And as it turns out, there's nothing that's important that's left out. Now, some people say, well, Brett, Acts 8.37 is kind of important when, you know, Philip is asked by the Ethiopian eunuch, hey, what need do I do? There's water, why can't I be baptized? And then the verse that's left out is where Philip says, well, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, with all your heart, you can. Uh, And and so they go down to the water and then they baptize. And that's the part that was left out, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's pretty important. Here's the good news. The rest of the Bible says that over and over again anyway. So we know it's true. Uh, Whether it's there or not, it doesn't matter because the Bible is completely thorough when it comes to main doctrines of the scriptures. We don't have to worry about things Uh, copyist errors. There's not one copyist error, date, time, name, place, or spelling, or whatever of of an ancient way of writing something uh, that we have to worry about. So uh, to take the stress off, there are, by the way, some, quote, translations that you should be uh, careful about or weary of, um, and that is, um, you know, the, the ones that are not really true translations. Uh, watch out for those, and uh, you know those come from the, the cults. You know, like um, you know the New World Translation. is called a translation, uh, and it's for Jehovah's Witness, uh, but they changed the the Bible. Um, uh, there's, by the way, there's confusion on Mormonism and their Bible. Um, um, did you know that J- Joseph Smith supposedly received divine inspiration to translate? the Bible. Did you know that? Um, Translate, uh, I put that in quotations because um, Mormon scholars acknowledge that Joseph Smith didn't know Greek, nor did he know Hebrew. Um, uh, so he didn't really do a translation. He claims rather that, um, you know, he, uh, had a, uh, you know, a ins- inspiration from God to fix a couple places in the Bible. And that there is a translation. It's called the JST or the Joseph Smith translation. Uh, Smith only changed certain portions of the Bible. His translation is called the inspired version is what they, they call it or the JST or the Joseph Smith translation. Um, uh, But as it turns out, this is kind of interesting. You should know this as a non-Mormon. It's not the uh, translation the LDS church officially uses, uh, that of uh, the Joseph Smith translation, which is funny to me, why don't they use that one? That's just a good question to ask. uh, but the official Bible of the Mormon Church, uh, they start with, uh, I should say, the scriptures they use uh, as the true scriptures. Uh, they use the King James version, as as we have it. Um, they've not changed it; the text is unaltered. And um, but but in the Joseph, in the Book of Mormon Bible version, where where it, and they'll include some other things, you know, the Pearl of Great Price sometimes, or the Book of Mormon. Um, will be added to the King James Bible. So they'll add whole sections of what they call inspired scripture. So that's what makes the Book of Mormon so kind of wacko. Um, And and by the way, a lot of the King James versions of LDS or Mormonism, they put Joseph Smith's inspired translation notes at the footnotes. Uh, so, so that's why if you've ever heard me say, well, you know, the Book of Mormon is not, you know, is is, is another translation you don't want to read. That's why I say that it's not because they use the King James, which is bad. It's it's that they. Um, I I actually like that Mormons use the King James, even though they use a bunch of other weird scriptures, Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great, Plot Price, and then the Joseph Smith footnotes in their King Jimmies. Um, I like that because I'm familiar with their Bible and I can make good argument about why Mormonism is so off base with a King James Bible. So just so you know that, I wanted you to kind of be aware of that one. So um, all that to say, I get off on tangents here, but... um, but watch out, don't, don't worry, 70 versus 72. You can do your own studies on which manuscripts, why they chose the two different numbers, not a big deal. Um, and it says in verse uh, one, he sent them two by two. Now now is where we get to some important ministry uh, practices. One of the things we see Jesus do is send people out two by two. Um, does anybody know what the Modesto Manifesto is? Uh, is, that, is that what Billy Graham called it? I think it was the Modesto Manifesto. Manifesto or Modesto Agreement. Um, basically, um, Billy Graham and his organization, back in 1948, his top dudes, including George Beverly Shea, if you know the singer, you know and stuff, um, they sat down uh, early in ministry and said, "We're going to be accountable, and we're not going to be in a place of compromise." And so they made a bunch of uh, agreements about how they handled money and how they uh, dealt with a bunch of ministry, uh, you know, issues. But one of the big ones uh, that came out of Billy Graham's ministry, he said, "We will not travel alone," and we'll never be seen alone with a woman that's not our wife. Uh, we'll never be anywhere in a place uh, with, with another woman that's not our wife. And, and um, isn't it interesting that Billy and his guys, as far as I know, made it through all those years, a lot of years of ministry as a nice looking, popular preacher that was pretty much a giant celebrity. And yet he made it uh, through without any big adulterous scandal or anything like that. I, I think, it's my opinion, that he did that and made it through because they very early made an idea, hey, let's just be accountable. Let's make ourselves accountable so there's no room for false accusation. Um, and I, I believe that's actually kind of a biblical notion. I think Jesus um, sends out his disciples two by two uh, and that keeps an accountability. Also, if one person's kind of lacking, the other person can come and step in and help out and, and assist Um, And so, you know, you always see in scripture, there's always the Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas, uh, Jesus with his disciples. Uh, You see even couples working together, Aquila and Priscilla, like there's great examples in the Bible of two by two. Um, And that's something that I would encourage. Um, At Athey Creek, we've tried to make that our, our, our way of doing things. We don't like if we send people on a trip, we send them at least two by two, uh, you know, the, the, or, um, you know, meetings. If there's a, if I'm meeting with another woman, which I don't do very often, but if I do, my wife's right next to me or, um, or at least one of the other staff members are with us in a, in a meeting situation because uh, just to be above reproach, um, that's kind of an important thing. Well, Jesus, I think he establishes that right here. Now, also it says that, that you know go two by two, and where was he going to send them? Um, wherever he would self, he himself would come. So these seventy or seventy-two uh, would go to places where Jesus was going to go as sort of a paving the way, a little bit John the Baptist, you know, the precursor till Jesus would come uh, into every city, every place, whether he himself would come. And um, and um, you know, I wonder if the Lord puts that on our hearts as well that. Christ might be using you to prepare the way for when Christ will come into someone's life. And you can be the one to, you know, prepare the way for them, to soften their heart toward things of Jesus. Uh, Wouldn't that be great if the Lord used you in that way? Um, Sometimes you feel like when you're talking to people, they're, you know, the things you're saying are falling on deaf ears. But who knows? You could be planting the seeds and then the Lord... um, could be the one to meet them and bring that whole thing to fruition. And you might not have anything to do with the, the actual harvest part of it, if you would, but planting the seeds, that can be your job. Maybe tomorrow at the Thanksgiving table, uh, the Lord would have you plant some seeds and talk about Jesus. Uh, I know that that might be fatal for some of you, but um, but if you do, uh, you, you know, don't be bummed if people reject you. Your family members are like, yeah, knock it off. We don't want to hear about that on Thanksgiving. Uh, but uh, but uh, anyway, um, you know, and this is where Jesus is giving them assignment, and and this is where we look at them as ambassadors. This this word ambassador that I'm talking about, um, Luke 10: Be ambassadors. Um, you know what's an ambassador an authorized representation of a sovereign um, we we think of you know ambassadors uh, you know given to uh, you know nations and states uh, an ambassador from such and such com- country um, Paul uses that term all the time uh, personally and also in ministry in general for example Ephesians 6 19 through 20 it says, um, as for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That's, that was his job, to let people know the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Um, Paul calls himself an ambassador in bonds because he was often in prison when he would write stuff like this. Um, but uh, in, in literal chains and bonds and cuffs and stuff like that. Um, also, you know, the idea of ambassador, uh, the Greek word is presbuo, which means an act, uh, active representative uh, of something uh, greater. Is the idea there? Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, verse eighteen and twenty, uh, Paul talks about, um, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, um, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I love this. This tells you and I, you know, when we sin, we're apart from God but we get to be ambassadors of reconciliation where the world can be reconciled back in good standing with God the Father. That's what this first part says. And then verse 20, now then, because of the reconciliation word that we're supposed to give, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So we get to be ambassadors, telling the world, "Hey, the Lord wants to see you, and He reconciled through Jesus Christ." That's the gospel message that we are ambassadors of. Um, The concept of an ambassador: uh, Are you a good representation of um, our sovereign um, God? You know, who wants you to let people know? That's a good thing to ask yourself. Am I am I a good ambassador? You know, what would it be like if, if, if you met an ambassador and let's say, let's say the ambassador of Japan came to your house for Thanksgiving tomorrow and you're like, oh, this will be interesting. And the ambassador from Japan sits at your table and suddenly says, oh, I love a pizza pie and some mozzarella uh, and, and tells you all the facts they know about the Roman Colosseum in Rome and, and the best fishing spots on the coast of Sicily. And, um, and sh- you know, wait, 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 shouldn't you be telling us about Tokyo and other things that are more Japanese? Uh, and less uh, you know Italian like that that you 're not a very good ambassador. You should be talking about your country. You see uh, now, why did I choose Japanese? I have no idea, but um, <laughs> but um, but uh, maybe i 'm hungry for pizza or something i don 't know but uh, I wonder if some of you guys ambassadors for Christ, and you show up and you talk about just about anything but Christ um, and you 're talking about things that are really of no consequence. Um, This will come into play. Jesus is actually gonna sort of address this about what they talk about. Don't waste your time talking about stupid stuff, but use your time wisely talking about things that actually have weight, matter as ambassadors for Christ. You should be talking about the gospel, about Jesus, about reconciliation. These are the things we get to uh, represent our sovereign. Um, There's a healthy pressure, by the way, when you know you're representing Jesus uh, as an ambassador Uh, It kind of hopefully keeps you on the straight and narrow. Um, Hopefully your behavior matches. You're not that, you know, Japanese ambassador talking about mozzarella and pizzas and stuff in Sicily. Uh, I wonder if there's Christians, some of you are not doing very good, maybe. Um, I remember when I was a, uh, um, I had a college group that I was in charge of years and years ago. Um, and I was encouraging them to try to go out and share the gospel more as young people, the single people that had, you know, time on their hands. Why not be ambassadors and go and, well, this one dude went down to Lithia Park in Ashland. That's in Southern Oregon where I was one of the pastors down in that area. And Lithia Park, you have to understand, is a beautiful park that's wacko. Uh, there's all kinds of weirdness uh, there and has been for a long time. They were woke before woke was a thing. Um, but... Um, so this guy went down there and he was kind of a fairly new Christian, but he got into the... And, and, I, and by the way, he, he went two by two with one of his other uh, dudes that were in our college group. So they went there and they, they went into a group of dudes sitting there and I think they were playing hacky sack and banging drums and doing all this stuff. And the guy came down, he thought, I'm just going to go. And then they started passing around a joint. And this is before it was legal, by the way, um, in Oregon. Uh, they were passing around a joint. And this guy, um, this young guy from our Bible study group, thought it'd be really cool to take a hit just to be cool with the guys as, they, as he's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so he took a, took a hit. Uh, is that what you say? You, you guys that are in the marijuana, don't answer that. You might get exposure. <laughs> like, yeah, no, you can. Like, um, but uh, so he, uh, he and, and, and then the, the conversation, and the reason I know this is the accountability partner that he was with said, hey, Pastor Brad, uh, this guy went and took a hit off of, so I, you know, he tattled Um, But it was great because I was able to pull the guy and say, man, that's, that's," you know, and and he even admitted, he said, man, when I did that, it's like I lost all credibility as a Christian. And these were like pothead people saying, aren't you supposed to be a Christian? And here you are smoking weed. Uh, And they didn't want to hear what he had to say because he, guess what? He wasn't being a very good ambassador um, to uh, represent Christ by that behavior. Um, so that's something for us to think about. You know, um, uh, it's important. First Thessalonians 5.23 says this, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. That means to set you apart, sanctify. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you, all these, you know, and the list above that is pretty horrifying of sinful people. You were all those sinful people, but you are washed, you are sanctified. That's the word set apart. But you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, Sanctified um, is is a word that is um, kind of sort of hard to speak in the English translation, but hagyadzo, which means uh, um, to purify and separate from impurities, basically, of this world. So so we're called to be set, set apart ambassadors representing Christ. Good question for you to ask yourself. How am I doing at being an ambassador? Do I talk about... Jesus, do I talk, am I living my life in a way that's sanctified so that I represent Jesus? Well, that's something we all have to ask ourselves. So to be ambassadors, we continue in verse two. Wow, we gotta move, here we go. <laughs> therefore, said he unto them, the harvest is, uh, truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, um, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Um, this is interesting. Speaking to the workers, the Lord says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers. Um, he doesn't tell them to pr- pray, pray that the work would be less intense or, um, or anything like that. He says, no, pray that there'd be more workers. Um, and that's kind of interesting. He's speaking to the workers. So, I've noticed Christians often pray, oh Lord, send workers for the harvest. But I'm not sure they're workers that are praying that. They're just people sitting around praying for workers. Um, Remember, the workers are the ones who also should be praying. So you should be praying for workers to come and and be harvesters, uh, the idea of spreading the gospel and harvesting the fruit from that. But I also think we should all be workers actually doing the job ourselves as well. Um, Are you a worker doing the work or just praying for others to do the work? Um, I've noticed there's a tendency in Christianity to do that. Um, What what area has the Lord put you uh, in to help with the harvest? Um, I love how the Lord can use so many different people in so many different ways. You know, the Lord uses his church Acy Creek, uh, and that's, that's a great thing to be a part of. I'm so thankful for the teams we have here. And if you're helping in the parking lot, you're helping with the harvest. Um, that's part of the work that's being done to get people to come and hear the gospel, be saved, go home with a repentant heart. And, and everybody that's working here is, is a part of that work. And I, I'm so thankful for that. But also think outside of the box because the church, it's not just here where the harvest should be seen. That, that's part of the deal. But what about where you live? Your uh, neighborhood, your apartment complex. Uh, there's a harvest to be had there. Um, your college campus, uh, maybe your sea of cubicles. Look at the harvest. Whew, big field ready to be harvested at Intel or at Nike or wherever you sadly have to work. Um, or maybe, maybe the family dinner table tomorrow uh, is a big Field of harvest, uh, some, something to think about. Brett, you're setting me up for trouble tomorrow, talking turkey. Uh, well, uh, I think it's important to think about that. Lord, how can I be a, an ambassador when I sit before my family? So pray for laborers, but also be the laborers. That's kind of one of the things we see. Verse three, go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Interesting. I've noticed the tendency for certain kinds of Christians to really not like this. I'm not a lamb. Um, there's, there's. Let me call, let me call out a, a so-called Christian um, tendency that I think is is probably going to offend some people, um, and that is. I wonder if there's some Rambos, Lambos, Lambo's, uh, you know, Lambo's. Are you a Lambo? Um, who's a Lambo? Well, a Lambo is maybe someone who doesn't like this thing where Jesus says, um, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. I'm not a wolf. I'm not a lamb, bro. I'm a wolf. And, And you know who loves to talk about that stuff is the toughest guys in the church. The guys that are tactical, the guys that like to shoot, which um, I'll, I'll confess, uh, you know, I, I, again, I always talk about, I'm not gonna talk about the Second Amendment because it's not in the Bible, so I talk about Bible things and I don't get into politics. I grew up shooting guns. I love, you know, I've done some hunting and I've, I, I've got, I've, you know, I like to go out with friends and it's just fun, shooting, stuff like that. But among those same friends, let's be really careful because when Jesus says I'm sending you out as lambs to the wolves this strikes me as something that's more of an attitude um, it should be more of a demeanor not as much of our intelligence uh, I, think, I think that's true too uh, the sheep are the dumbest animal on the planet uh, how do you know Brett I've raised sheep I had a lot of sheep growing up uh, I raised sheep I showed them in the 4-H when I was like 8 uh, uh, and they're dumb cute cuddly Vulnerable, but dumb as a brick. There's stories of sheep. You know, I should have brought my videos of my sheep jumping into ditches and stuff. I have shown some of those things to you before, but uh, I don't need to get off on that. But um, but but I've noticed that that there's this tendency to say, you know, I, I'm no sheep. I, I'm a I, I'm the wolf. I'm the lion. Um, and I think that can be a point of pride. Now, I'm not a, opposed to protecting and, and you, know, uh, you know, your house, your home, your family, your church. Uh, I'm so thankful we have a security team who is well-trained. I'm not arguing against being ready for, you know, ill will against our church, your family, stuff like that. I'm not arguing against that. But there's an attitude that we have to be careful of um, when, we, when we realize what Jesus is saying here. It's a demeanor Sheep are not intimidating and they're not trying to intimidate people. Um, there's nothing about them that's like that. Um, you know, it, it, uh, Matthew, in fact, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus even says more about this Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore, now this is where it's interesting wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So wisdom does play a part. You're not to be dumb, but you're supposed as a sheep. But but uh, you're supposed to be harmless as doves, and and there's this there's this attitude in the Christian church if we're not careful of kind of like well you come to my door boom I'm gonna blow your head off if you come asking for food during the apocalypse. Um, is that really the heart of Jesus? If some of your neighbor comes over during the apocalypse, uh, by the way, um, you know I, I don't think we're gonna be here during the apocalypse as Christians. Good news. But what if things get really, really bad uh, before the rapture of the church? Which they really could. Uh, there's been other generations that have just seen horrible things, worse than anything we've ever seen. Um, do, do we just, uh, if, if food is scarce in Portland and people are starving and they come to your door and they want and that knock on your door, are you gonna blow their head off for Cheerios? Um, I hear Christians almost like talk like that sometimes. And I just wanna tell you, that's not the way of Jesus. Um, Jesus says, I'm sending you as sheep to the wolves. Be, be careful with the attitude uh, of, you know, kind of the hostility toward people that are uh, disagreeing with you or have a different pol- t- politic than you or things like that. Um, again, I'm not arguing for, not, you know, no self-defense. I'm not a pacifist uh, for any stretch of the imagination. I just sense there's a, a little bit of a, uh, a bunch of sheep trying to play Lambo just a little too much. Does that make sense? Does anybody know what I'm talking about there? Oh, good. Some of you do. That's good. If you don't get it, you're probably just the person that doesn't get it. Uh, anyway, you know, I mean, we can talk about Romans twelve seventeen. Recompense, no man evil for evil, but provide things honest. If at all possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Like the Bible is really clear about this stuff. I could go on and on about the, you know, you know, payback, uh, you know, Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-five. You know, vengeance belongs to me, saith the Lord. I will repay. Like the Lord says, I will. And and I, I just sense there's a little bit of a, a Lambo mentality that's not really Jesus-centered. Something to think about. Well, you can pray about that, think about that more as you will. But uh, verse four: carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes and salute no man by the way. Now, you Second Amendment people, by the way, you're like, Brett, Luke misses an opportunity here because one of the other passages talks about Jesus sending the disciples out. And this is the one the Second Amendment people hang on for dear life. Um, Does anybody remember what else Jesus tells them to bring? a sword, (laughs) and that's their life verse. You know, it's like, uh, um, so yeah, if you want to look for a scripture to support your second amendment rights, uh, there is that, a little little tiny mention of the sword uh, there. But Jesus is also told, seen telling Peter, Peter, put away your sword. Remember that? (laughs) Peter pulled out his sword, you know, to sword it up and chop off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Uh, Didn't work out so good. Anyway, be careful on that one. But here, Luke doesn't talk really about that as much. He just says, "Don't carry your money, your wallet, your script, or shoes. Um, uh, salute no man." By the way, this is interesting. What is it? So, so you say it's going to be dangerous, um, but there's also a sense of haste, or maybe a sense of urgency. Like we got to get busy, got to get get after it. Um, and then, and, and that comes from when he says, "Salute um, no man." By the way. Now this might be something you and I miss because we're a little faster in our culture when we say hi or salute, we're like, hey, what's up? And then we just said hi and that's it. In the Middle East, even to this day, if you go and you see somebody you, you like every time I go to Jerusalem, I see the same people and and um, there's this one guy I go visit at the King David hotel he's a, become a friend of mine uh, one one of the trips at ay creek i we stayed in the hotel next to the King David and um and i I thought, hey let's go over and look at the King David because historically it's a cool hotel, so I was going to stay in the nicer hotel, but go go tour of the King David. So I went in there and the concierge was there and he's this big Arab guy sitting there at the King David. And, um, and I said, hey, can I give my group a little tour? And he says, I'll let you tour if you can beat me in an arm wrestling competition. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, okay. So we went after it. <laughs> I, yeah, he wasn't hard. I'm just going to say it was easy. Um, uh. Um, and he said, oh, you know, and, and he said, okay, you can go look. And so I took the group around and we showed them all the historic tables where accords were signed by famous politicians. And Ronald Reagan sat over here and like, it was kind of fun tour. Well, anyway, um, now that guy's my buddy. But here's how it goes. Every time I see him now, I walk into the King David. He runs up, Habibi, my friend. And, mwah, 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 you know, and it's like hugging. And, and then, how are you? How is your family? And like, like we have this warm, you know, long. And then we arm wrestle again to see if he'll let me uh, tour the next group through. And uh, it's just kind of a funny thing. But it takes like 15 minutes, you know, of time, which, you know, we're all tired from touring that day. And people are like, hey, Brett, when are you going to stop saying hi to your friend? Well that's the that's kind of the middle east. Uh, they're just very very so so when, Je- when when Jesus says hey, um salute no man don't waste your time oh my my friend and hugging none of that. That's the way they did it in those days. Don't waste time with that. You there's an urgency. Um you know they're they're, they're supposed to travel light and waste no time on idle conversations. Again, that's what I was talking about. What do you talk about as an ambassador of Jesus? Are you talking about idle conversation too much? I don't think we can totally remove that, nor should we. But here as Jesus sort of puts the urgency on their ambassadorship, there to be men impelled by one supreme um, motive to prepare the hearts for the coming of Christ. Um, uh, personally, when he was going to be in that that town. Same thing we're supposed to do. Prepare for the coming of Christ. Be busy about speaking the things of Jesus. Verse 5. It says, um, And into whatsoever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house... Remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for uh, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house, and into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Um, notice that verse nine, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto them, so Jesus is saying man don 't make a big deal, but go and and you know the the work you 're doing the way you 're going to eat is by the kindness of of people giving you dinner, and whatever they put in front of you, eat especially when you 're out on the mission you know um, I had this mind going in my this this um, in mind when I was in Africa, I was in a place uh, in Sapone out in the bush of Africa and and, um, you know, I, we kind of had to eat whatever they gave us. It was 120 degrees that afternoon. We were all sweating, but we went into this mud hut and sweated out even worse. I don't know how hot it was in the mud hut. And then they served dinner, and it was goat head soup. They'd taken these goats. I saw them killing them as I was walking in. They beheaded the goats, and, uh, and they put goat brains and eyeballs in this soup. And you can literally see the eyeballs. Um, and they're floating around in there. And it's like a real delicacy to them, you know. And so... I was there sweating, you know, and as the lady was walking up, she's so sweet. All the ladies there in Africa are so sweet, but they had slaved over the hot fire, cooking the soup. And so when she came, she was, she was bowing very courteously, like the way they do in Africa. And, and as, she was, as she was handing me the bowl, um, sweat was dripping off her nose. It was dripping off mine too, but it was dripping off her nose into the bowl as, as she's handing it to me, I'm like, oh, thank you. And I'm like, at least I don't have to add salt, you know, cause it's, it's already, and um, So the sweat and the goat eyeballs. And, you know, when you eat the eyeballs, they kind of pop, you know? And you can sort of taste the lens, I think. It's like a hard little... Has anybody had eyeballs before? Anybody? Yeah, do you know what I'm talking about? Like there's a little lens or something in there. Um, uh, Why did I tell you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Eat all the stuff they put in front of you. You know what's amazing about that? If... um, If, if you, um, if you were to serve that to me in Tualatin, I don't think I could get through it without throwing up, but there was something about being with these sweet and amazing African people, um, and being in the, in the context of the way they live and eat and stuff. It's like the Lord just gave me the grace to be able to not only eat it, but I, I was okay with it. Like it just, it, it was great. Um, and, um, I think that's kind of the thing, you know, like at the end of Mark, when it says, you know, if you're on the mission field, that's the context. If you eat any deadly poison or anything, it won't affect you when you're on the mission field. It's like the Lord puts a protection, you know, because my little fragile American stomach wasn't used to goat head soup. Um, And yet the Lord was able to sort of just just get us through that. Um, uh, I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Don't worry about this stuff. Just, you know, whenever you're fed, eat it. Don't make a big deal out of it. Um, and uh, just just be ready. You know, the workman's worthy of his hire kind of thing. And uh, and this idea of, you know, if they don't receive you with peace, then you can head out and the peace will leave with you and won't be upon their house. Um, it's like we read about uh, earlier, uh, by the way, we'll, we'll see more of this as we get into this. But um, verse 10 but uh, into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. What do they mean in verse 9 and in verse 11 that the kingdom of God is coming nigh? Well, it gets back to this. Uh, we know the ultimate kingdom is gonna come during the millennial kingdom when Christ returns, the second coming. But for you to have a kingdom, you also have to have a king. And Jesus, the king, was coming to their town. The kingdom's near, is what they were saying, because the king, the king is near, and they were supposed to be the precursor to the king. Does that make sense? That's why they were saying this. You guys better be ready, because Jesus is coming. Even if they rejected the disciples, well... We're going to shake the dust off our feet or wipe it off, as it says here. Um, do you remember in Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 5, I think it was, um, where, yeah, it says, whosoever will not receive you when you go out of uh, that city. Shake the dust off your feet for a testimony against them. Um, and that's the idea here as well. Uh, and they would speak out in the street. We're going to wipe the dust of our feet off of the city because you're, um, you're rejecting us. That's what the disciples were supposed to do. Um, and then Jesus would go even further on this notion of what happens if a town rejects um, Jesus or the, even the disciples who are trying to prepare the way for Jesus, um, he, he's gonna talk about this. So when you're rejected, uh, you know, don't be discouraged is what he's telling the disciples here. Just shake the dust off and move on. It reminds me Second uh, John John 1, verses nine through 11. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, the people who reject the disciples' words, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not unto your house, neither bid him God speed. For he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. (laughs) What does this mean? Well, for my grandfather, who's now in heaven, um, I remember hearing stories, if a Jehovah's Witness came to his door, he'd have his 12 gauge out there and say, tell you what, get out of my door. Uh, and they'd shake the dust off their feet and walk away. That's one way to get you Now you might be arrested for that today, um, but that's the way my, grand- now you're arguing force, 12 gauge? Uh, wait a minute, no, I'm not saying that's the way to handle it. But is it, this is where my grandpa got this idea because it says the person, if anybody comes to you and doesn't bring the true doctrine or teaching of Jesus, which they don't, they teach a different Jesus altogether, um, don't receive him into your house. Don't let him come in. Sometimes I wonder if we let too many people with false doctrine and false teaching, um, we, we, we bid them Godspeed in the name of unity and love um, Christians, it's a tricky thing because we should love one another on all the essential doctrines. Um, if, if a church is an essential doctrine church, even though they might have different views on certain things, we should be loving and accepting. Um, on the non-essentials, man, we can differ. But on the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, that's where we start getting into this this idea: don't receive them into your house, um, don't bid them Godspeed. Um, and there's there's whole uh, kind of a loosey-goosey Christianity out there that's very accepting of all versions of Christianity, um, even though they verge off of the uh, true Christian faith. We should be careful about that. Well, anyway, this is what Jesus is telling us, guys. If these guys reject the true doctrine of Jesus, then shake the dust off your feet and uh, get out of that town. And then Jesus is gonna, uh, by the way, this this word here from 2 John is coming from the apostle of love. That's kind of interesting. Uh, he's the one that says, don't let them in their house. And he's known for his love for other people. Well, anyway, Jesus is now in verse 12, gonna even go further on these towns that would uh, reject Jesus. Let's go on verse 12. But I say unto you, Jesus said, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than uh, that for that city, the the one that you guys get rejected in, whatever city that might be, it's gonna be more tolerable. How tolerant was God towards Sodom? Sodom is the city most notorious for being so destroyed. They, to this day, don't even know where it is. We know the region down near the Dead Sea somewhere probably. And there's all kinds of articles you can read about where they think Sodom is. But truthfully, they've never found uh, any any trace of the actual city itself. Why? because it was completely destroyed. The epitome of destruction was given to Sodom. And so um, Jesus says, it's gonna be more tolerable for Sodom. Why would you say more tolerable for Sodom? Because Sodom was bad. Well, what was bad about Sodom? Does anyone remember what was the sin that got Sodom into trouble? Pride, that's right. Some people say homosexuality. No, it was their pride that led to them thinking that homosexuality was awesome. Um, isn't it funny? We call it gay pride uh, today. Uh, I call it gay pridefulness because it's in flying the face of God. That was, that was the problem, pride. But what's gonna be the problem of these towns that reject these disciples and the doctrine and the teaching of Jesus? They're not, only reject- they're not only prideful, but they're rejecting Jesus, which is the worst thing you could ever do. Rejecting Jesus, the Messiah. So these cities that reject Jesus will be dealt more harshly than Sodom. That's the, that's the deal. Why the harshness for these cities? Verse 13. It says in verse 13, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment Then for you and thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me. He that despises you despises me. And he that despises me despises him that sent me. Um, This is God. Now we're down to saying you're despising God when you despise the disciples of Jesus. That's, That's the logic there. Now, why does Jesus, uh, you know, refer to this? Uh, um, it's interesting. You know, these cities, Capernaum, Bethsaida. Why were they li- listed? These are the cities Jesus did more miracles than any of the other cities: Capernaum, Bethsaida, uh, Chorazin, and uh, so they were cursed extra. Uh, Luke chapter twelve, verse forty-eight. Remember, it tells us, "For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required." And these cities were given Jesus doing miracles week after week in their cities, but they still rejected Jesus. That's why Jesus says, it'd be better, it's better for, you know, Tyre and Sidon than for you. You say, well, Brett, what's going on with Tyre and Sidon? Can I show you, I want to show you, it's a prophecy that I never tire of. Um, It's Ezekiel chapter 26. Would you flip over? Keeping your finger here, flip over to Ezekiel 26. And um, basically, Tyre and Sidon Um, They were a um, very godless pagan, a horrible. um, You know, they they reached a whole new height of paganism and sinfulness, and so Tyre and Sidon are basically in this Old Testament scriptures cursed by God to be destroyed. Uh, Check out the. This is really an interesting prophecy. Uh, Let's start there uh, in verse um, verse three. It says it's Ezekiel twenty six. Verse three, it says, "'Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, "'Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus,' or Tyre, "'and I will cause many nations to come up against thee "'as the sea causes his waves to come up.'" You know how waves come up on the shore and kind of wipe stuff out and then go away, and then another wave comes and it wipes your castle out. Um, That's the way it's gonna be, the Lord's saying. Um, "'And they shall destroy,' verse four, "'the walls of Tyre, and break down her towers.'" And I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. So the Lord says, I'm gonna give you a flat tire. It's gonna be flattened. Uh, I will not spare tire, it says here. Sorry. Verse five. "Um, It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, it saith the Lord God, it shall become a spoil to the nations. Verse seven, and I uh, thus saith the Lord God, uh, uh, behold, I will bring upon Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north, with horses and with chariots, and with horsemen and companies, and much people. Now, I'm just giving you kind of the heads up on sort of the high points of this, but you know Tyre's gonna be scraped flat, the Lord says. Um, uh, now, what was Tyre? It was a Phoenician city that was... Um, on the, the Mediterranean, and if you look at an old map of Tyre, uh, you know, the mainland there would be modern-day Lebanon today, north of Israel just a little bit, and then Tyre was sort of an island, a city, city island that was sort of fortified, but you have to understand, when Ezekiel said this, Tyre was a, uh, the height of civilization. It was one of the greatest ports in all the Mediterranean Sea, uh, which is really kind of interesting. A powerful and a key player for centuries, Tyre was the big deal. Um, during the first millennium BC, Tyre experienced this golden age uh, during the reign of King Hiram. Maybe you remember reading about Hiram of of um, Tyre, King of Tyre, 971 uh, BC. Um, but um, as the Phoenician traders went from that place and started expanding uh, during the 8th century BC, um, it, it became the, the, the nickname Queen of the Sea, uh, which was the, the island port there of Tyre. Um, but, um, but the Lord says, I'm gonna wipe this out. So, so the history is interesting. He, the Bible, Ezekiel predicted that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon would come and attack uh, Tyre long before Nebi even came. Ezekiel said, this is what's going to happen. This is a prophecy of the Bible. Well, sure enough, in 585 BC, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and wiped out Tyre, but he didn't flatten Tyre like the Bible says he was going to do. Remember, it's going to be waves that come ultimately in time. So Nebi wiped out Tyre, and it became quite a few notches less after the Babylonians crushed Tyre, uh, the uh, the city island of Tyre. Fast forward, 225 years later, 332 BC-ish, Alexander the Great came down, second wave that came over the city of Tyre um, and besieged the city. Guess how long the city of Tyre was besieged um, by Alexander the Great? Uh, kind of interesting because it wasn't just Alexander who started I think it was his father, Philip, who started the besieging of Tyre. Um, and then 13 years later, they, they, they were under siege for 13 years. That, that's quite a long time to be a city under siege. Um, but the people um, that, were, uh, the, that were in the, the mainland part of that region, they all snuck out to the island. So by the time um, uh, Alexander the Great crushed the walls of, of the mainland fortified areas, he found nobody there. There was nobody la- there. It was empty. And Alexander the Great was furious. This, this ticked Alexander so bad when he realized that they all snuck out to the island. Um, so what did he do? Does anybody know what he did? He built a land bridge, a causeway between the mainland. This is a half a mile, half a mile of Mediterranean Sea. And um, you say, how did he do that? The one word, slaves. Alexander had lots of slaves. Remember, he conquered the world. And so he pretty much enslaved um, millions of people. So you just get enough slaves. You can make any job easy. It makes a tough job easy. So they, (laughs) I'm joking. Um, But they built a half mile uh, land bridge um uh you know by and and by by the way guess where they got the material to make this causeway they they literally scraped the the mainland part of tire scraped it clean flat and pushed you know all the dirt and rocks and stones and buildings and everything pushed it into the sea and made the causeway um and and that's kind of what you see in some of these artist renderings of what happened there um, and it's quite a story. You can read about it in, in the um, um, in the history books and what have you. Now, um, uh, by the way, this is great. Alexander was so ticked off, he literally carried rocks on his own back and threw them into the sea. Like that's an interesting part of the story. Alexander became the slave. He was so furious at these people of Tyre. But he wiped them out, got out to the island, killed everybody basically. But then, then some... Um, uh, um, um basically the Crusader era about 1290 uh, AD the Crusaders rebuilt this area so it's it starting to make the Bible wrong again oh but wait remember the Bible says wave upon wave so the Crusaders built up a fortress on the island city of Tyre after the causeway was built and what have you um, and by the way as, as centuries have gone by this is kind of what you see today you um, and if you look at it like a satellite image, this is, this is it today. Uh, it's quite a story. But, um, but the crusaders came down to the new city of Tyre, but the Muslims drove them out. The Muslims knocked over the city and then pushed it also into the sea. Um, and, and then after the Muslims in 12, uh, 1290-ish, when they did that, guess what happened? Nobody rebuilt it. Now, if you go there today, you, you'll see some homes and village. It's like little, they're a little fishing village there. In fact, this is the main city of Tyre today. It's, it's a ruin. It's an archaeological ruin. This is the main city. Um, but other than that, what you see is some fishermen that live there, and their nets are on the side of the seashore. What did the Bible say? It'll be a place for fishing nets. No longer a great golden city, the queen of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. Brett, why did you go into all of that? Because I never tire of that story. But we're <laughs> we're tired of this story. Can we move on? Um, the reason I I wanted to you to see this is when God says I'm going to curse a city, He means it. It's it's as good as done. And the waves, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great or the Crusaders or whatever, the Muslims, um, it was was done deal. And to this day, that sits as a ruin. There's some interesting cities that have curses that haven't been yet yet, uh, fulfilled in prophecy. One of the most interesting ones, by the way, is Isaiah 17, which is the city of Damascus. Um, The same prophecy that was put upon Tyre to be flattened and, and desolate where nobody lives there anymore, that same prophecy has been put upon Damascus, guess what? That's never happened in history. Damascus is the oldest city in the world that's never stopped being inhabited, which means that's still something that's in the future. Uh, by the way, can anybody see a scenario where Man- Damascus might be totally wiped out? Israel's bombing their runways as we speak uh, right now uh, because the Iranians and the Syrians are up there uh, threatening the security of Israel. And Israel's northern border, uh, Damascus, is the epicenter of Iran's operations up there. And the Bible says someday it's going to become a de- desolate, scraped-off city where nobody's going to be able to live there. Israel has threatened, if any rockets of those high-tech rockets you know, that, um, that they have up there in Syria fly from there to Israel, the Israelis have promised we will flatten Damascus Implication without saying, probably a nuclear war is what uh, they're talking about to, to level Tyre. Anyway, that could really start a whole nother chain of problems. The Ezekiel 38 war, eventually Armageddon. So that's just kind of a little thing you might want to be aware of. <laughs> Brad, how did you get into all that? Oh, Jesus. Jesus talked about it. Back to Luke chapter 10. Jesus said, uh, man, whoa, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. it had been better for Tyre and Zidon than for you guys. Um, uh, that's because they're gonna reject the ambassadors that Jesus is sending. Um, and by the way, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum sit as ruined cities without rebuilding to this day. Interesting. Well, verse 17 goes on. Um, it, says, and, it says, and the 70, uh, did we finish? Did we skip a verse? 15, did we read 15? Oh yeah, we read that. Okay, verse 17. And the 70 returned after doing, you know, this little stint of being sent out. They returned with again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They're all excited. Wow, even the devils, we can cast out devils. And Jesus gives them a little warning. Verse 18 It says, and he said to them, I beheld Satan as as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Interesting Jesus says this, huh? You know, they're all excited. Wow, well, we can cast out demons. Um, have you ever noticed there's some ministries and churches, some some of them are a little bit maybe off on the demonology stuff, but um, they celebrate the demon stuff. And it's like all they ever talk about is demons. But Jesus said, be careful you don't get all focused on that. If you're going to focus on something, focus on this, that your names are written in heaven. And, and we know what that is in the book of life. You're saved. Um now, uh, there's two main ideas when Jesus said, I saw you know, the fall of the power of Satan and his angels. Um, like, what is, that, what is that all about? Um, there's two main ideas that Jesus saying, I was there when Satan fell. Was Jesus there at the fall of Satan? Yes. Well, he wasn't born in Bethlehem yet. But you got to remember, Jesus was, was before. He pre-existed uh, before he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was there at creation, the Bible tells us. Um, so some um, are saying, you know, believe this is Jesus. And I was there at that time. Um, uh, and and, um, and uh, the other people say, no, there was a, more of the literal seeing Satan fall from heaven. Um, did Jesus witness all this? He did. Jesus is God. He preexisted all creation. Um, and by the way, how did Satan fall from heaven? Same thing as Sodom and Gomorrah, pride, by the way. I was listening to Bing this week, uh, The Littlest Angel. Anybody know the song by Bing, The Littlest Angel? Nobody knows the littlest angel? You guys call yourselves Christian? Okay, one. Yeah, I'm just kidding, just messing. It cracks me up because there's a Christmas song that Bing sings about the littlest angel in heaven, but the end of the story, he's, he's just blessed and his, his little toys become uh, the star above. The, it's kind of a non-biblical sort of thing. But the end of the song, you will know the proudest angel of them all. He's the littlest angel of all. And everybody's weeping as they hear the Christmas song. I'm like, no, the proudest angel is Satan. That's the, It's like prideful. Like, watch out for your Christmas tunes. Uh, some of them are not doctrinally sound. I'm just going to tell you that this Christmas season. Uh, but uh, Satan was lifted up with pride, and he was cast out of heaven. Um, so like Jesus is saying, I saw Satan fall from heaven because of pride like that. Like, like some think, think he's saying it, I saw it because of uh, power over Satan. But others are saying, no, the, 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 um, I saw Satan fall from heaven because of his pridefulness. And watch out for that with Corazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum and these others. And yourself, watch yourself for pride. It reminds me, we're running out of time, but that, that Jeremiah nine twenty three, where the Lord says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, or the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that, um, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So th- these are the things that um, we need to, if we're gonna boast in something, that we know Jesus, that we're saved, that our names are written in heaven. That's, that's what we're told here. Um, well, uh, verse 21 And in that hour, Jesus rejoiced. So they were rejoicing for casting out demons and stuff. Now, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hath revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal um, him. Jesus is rejoicing because the little babies, the disciples, That's that's what he's talking about. Oh, you've revealed to these little babies, not to the wise. Those are the Pharisees in Jerusalem, the scribes, the Herodians, the lawyers and all the stuff we've, but not revealed to the wise or the powerful, but to the weak little babies. And he's talking to these, about these 70 or 72 disciples that he's saying, oh, the Lord is revealing his truth to these simple little babies. That's what he's saying. He's rejoicing. And then um, it kind of reminds me, by the way, God has chosen the weak and the foolish things. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven reminds us, kind of reminds me of that. Um, but uh, verse 23, it says, and he turned, um, he turned him unto the disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them. And to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Uh, is he talking about the casting out of demons and the power over Satan? Not really. I think he's talking about Jesus himself. Jesus himself uh, is what they got to see. God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. They were seeing Jesus on the move and they were the ones who got to witness that. You know, And Jesus is saying, you guys got the better end. Of it. Don't you understand the prophets? Well, what about Moses, man? He saw He saw the parting of the Red Sea. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, but that's nothing to being here with Jesus. Yeah, but the Nile turning to blood? Nope, being with Jesus is bigger. What about the fall of the walls of Jericho? Nothing compared to being with Jesus. Um, Elijah calling fire down from heaven? Nope. Uh, You see, Jesus saying the prophets wish, they saw some cool stuff, but they wish they could see what you guys are seeing with your own eyes. The King of Kings, the Messiah is here. Um, did those Old Testament miracles, by the way, really solidify the children of Israel's faith in God? Um, no, they didn't. Uh, they, in fact, the more miracles God showed them, it seemed like the more faithless they were. It was shocking. So, the first section, verses 1 through 24, is number one, be ambassadors. Um, number two, be neighbors. Verses 25 through 37. Um, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to his host and said unto him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thou, uh, thinkest thou, was the neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And the lawyer, he said, he that showed mercy on him. And he then said, Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. The story of the Good Samaritan, we looked at that. And this is what Jesus does. He defines who is your neighbor and where to be thoughtful, considerate, loving neighbors. And we saw different layers of application to this story. If you missed this on Sunday, verses 25 through 27, or this weekend, you can uh, get caught up on uh, our website or on YouTube uh, to to get caught up on that. So this is where Jesus teaches us how to be loving neighbors. So number one, we're supposed to be ambassadors, one through 24, be neighbors, 25 through 37. Thirdly, finally, we're to be worshipers, verses 38, to 42 verse 38 it says now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house and she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word Okay, so this is where we, you know, if you've been with us, we've been going through the gospels, Matthew and Mark, and now Luke. We already are familiar with Mary and Martha. But if you're new, this is an amazing couple of ladies and they have a brother named Lazarus. They live in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus is really close now to Jerusalem. After you're in Bethany, you just kind of walk over a hill and then you see the Temple Mount and Jerusalem. So it's, it's really kind of a cool thing. Um, you know, what's interesting about Bible names. Um, did you know you have to be kind of careful with Bible names? Uh, I've noticed nobody names their children Jezebel or, you know, um, Judas. Uh, kind of like, I don't hear the name Adolf thrown around very often. Um, but, um, but you know, Mary and Martha. I mean, there's a lot of Marthas. But it's funny because if you um, if you know your Bible names, uh, here's a funny one, James. I always like to give my buddy's name James uh, a hard time. Because if you go to the, do you remember like uh, Christian, you know, uh, trinkets.com, you get the Christian mugs and Christian plaques and Christian this and that. They always have the little cups with your name and then the meaning on it. And it always lies. Like, like all those cups are lies. Um, Like if you go to find James, you'll find the cup that says, James, truthful one. Is that what James means? Does anybody know what James means? Deceitful. (laughs) So he's being deceitful with this truthful cup it's just kind of funny to me um, James comes from Jacob by the way in the Old Testament Jacob it's the it's the New Testament version and I uh, remember heel snatcher Jacob was deceitful that's where that all comes from in the same way Martha oh but Brett my grandma's name is Martha well if you get the cup from the christianbooks.com or whatever um, it says it means a lady like oh that's a great name I'm going to name my daughter Martha um, but they left a little word out. The, the word is a bitter lady. <laughs> like, yeah, that's grandma. Mm. No, just, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure that's not true. Um, the reason I go into that, this is interesting, because Mary does uh, mean exalted. That's an interesting name. Mary means exalted. Um, but Martha means a bitter lady. I, I think that's, remember the waters of Mara? What were those waters? They were bitter waters. So just a reminder, kind of where this mar bitterness comes from, and Martha is a bitter lady. Um, The reason I tell you that is not that Martha was a a really bad person or anything, but there was a bitterness in her that's seen in the story. And that's something we have to kind of discern why. Um, And and let's take a look. And this really could, by the way, parallel two stories we're, we're gonna cover in more detail in the Gospel of John. Uh, this, this particular story. So it goes on in verse uh, 40. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, bitter lady, bitter lady. Thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Interesting here in Luke, Luke focuses on them and what they're doing more than the other gospels. Mary's at the feet of Jesus. And by the way, where do we always see Mary? Always at the feet of Jesus. Martha, she's bitter, anxious, busy, serving. Now this is a tough one because somebody has got to do the dishes, right? And some of you ladies are like, yeah, but somebody's got to cook and do the. Would Je, you know would Jesus have had dinner? Um, if you're thinking about that right now, you might want to read this carefully. <laughs> Just saying, especially tomorrow, you're going to be cooking fier- fiercely uh, in the kitchen, uh, being bitter. Um, but um, but but Martha was trying to make her house nice for Jesus and her and the company, and and you can't knock her for that. Um, was that the what was the bad that she was busy doing that? I'm not sure that's the bad thing. The bad thing that Martha did wasn't that she, um, you know, was cooking and cleaning and all that stuff. It was more about that she seemed bitter and anxious about Mary. What's Mary doing, Jesus? I'm doing all the heavy lifting over here. Um, I wonder if that's the biggest problem. Um, You know, uh, have you ever given the person, you know, uh, something that they didn't really want or care about? You know, here's Martha saying, I'm going to give a clean house and I'm going to give you really good food. And she's like, well, that's great, but... What's really needful is what Mary's doing, sitting at my feet. Um, this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, important notion, doing is less, uh, less important more uh, than, than, say, devotion. That's what, that's what you need to understand. Doing is important. We do have to do stuff, but doing is less important than devotion. What we do with Christ is infinitely more important than what we do for Christ. I think that's an important thing. That's what Martha has to learn here. Um, Don't forsake worship for works. I think that focusing on mission work and ministries rather than actually worshiping the Lord. I know people that are all about doing stuff. We're gonna do stuff. We're gonna, you know, for the cause of Christ, we're gonna do this, this, and this, this, but they won't sit down and just give time and their attention and love to Christ. Mary chose the better thing. Take on being more Mary-like. All three accounts where we see Jesus with Mary and Martha and Lazarus We always see Mary at the feet of Jesus and Martha working and buzzing around. Um, You know, if you think about um, uh, John chapter 11, remember when Lazarus died? Martha, what was she doing? Buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. Um, We see Jesus moseying after Lazarus had died, moseying over to Bethany and Martha's buzzing. She runs out and greets him along the way. Where's Mary? Mary, she's just chilling in the house. Um, Lazarus, died. Oh Lord, if you'd only been here, you know, my, my brother would not have died. You know, the one, you know, um, but then on the way, as Jesus went a little further, finally, Martha runs back and gets Mary and bra- drags her out. And then Mary says the same thing as Martha. I wonder if Martha said, okay, Mary, Jesus is on the way. I've already greeted him a half a mile away. Now he's about a quarter of a mile away. He's like, come on. And, you got you. and here's what you tell him. You tell him what I told him. You say, uh, if you'd only been here, our brother who had been here not have died. So Mary comes out, falls at his feet, and says, oh, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Um, interesting depiction of Martha. She's always busy, busy, busy. Um, but Mary, even when she said, oh, Lord, if you'd only been there, laying at the feet of Jesus saying that sounds different. Then Martha saying, oh, Lord, if you'd only been here, you know, Lazarus would be still alive and kicking right now. But I know you, you know, after the resurrection and all that. Like, like it was an interesting, the busyness of Martha, she kind of shows... Um, uh, how wrong it is to kind of think that way. Uh, Mary and Martha, we're going to learn more about them as we continue our study. Can I just give you, a, this is a great Thanksgiving Eve section of the Bible, serving dinner, cooking, cleaning, getting ready for your guests. Um, maybe before you do anything, and before you turn on the oven, preheat tomorrow morning, um, what if you took a little time in the word and just sat at the feet of Jesus and kind of get things started right on Thanksgiving morn? Uh, that'd be a good way to start a Thanksgiving, just in worship at the feet of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we go our way tonight, I pray your blessing on these, your people. Lord, this chapter is so full of important and good things for us to learn. Help those things to stick in our minds and that good fruit would come from it. Lord, bless the families. We, we have so much to be thankful for uh, tomorrow. I pray that it'd be not just a fun uh, day stuffing our faces, um, but Lord, I pray that we would spend time Just uh, even as your word says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So we wanna be thankful. We have much to be thankful, Lord. We give you glory and honor. Bless tomorrow, we pray. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.